You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There are 10 times more people with serious mental illness in our jails and prisons than in our state psychiatric hospitals. Just take a moment and let that striking statistic settle into your mind. We're going to spend the rest of the hour talking about the intersection of mental illness and mass incarceration with someone who knows the subject inside and out and has some important observations and alternatives laid out in her latest book. Last summer, Dr. Christine Montrose released a book titled Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. And in it, she explores the emotional toll and implications of life behind bars for parents, for children, for people who struggle with addiction, and for the correctional officers and physicians who are charged with caring for inmates. Now, a year later, more people seem willing to recognize the flaws in America's criminal justice system. And yet our jails are still overcrowded, and the reality of any real reform feels very far away. Montrose Johns joins me now to talk about the issues she lays bare in Waiting for an Echo and how she's viewing this moment as it relates to the possibility of how America's mass incarceration system could change for the better. Christine Montrose is an author, poet, and associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She's also a practicing inpatient psychiatrist. Her book, Waiting for an Echo, is now available in paperback. Dr. Montrose, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. So this is a subject that we have heard a lot about, I feel like, lately. As the discussion around prison reform has gained momentum and gained allies uh, across the political spectrum. But I don't know that anyone has dived as completely into this particular intersection as as you have or illuminated it as brightly. So, so tell me what prompted you to look at this issue uh, in such specificity. My primary clinical role is in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. So I work as the attending psychiatrist on the intensive treatment units of a freestanding psychiatric hospital. It's a psychiatric version of the ICU. So the patients that I treat are severely mentally ill. They're hearing voices or seeing visions. They might be extremely paranoid or very manic or actively trying to hurt themselves or other people. And over the years of my practice, I've noticed increasingly that my patients come in contact frequently with police and sometimes serve time in our nation's jails and prisons. And I couldn't help but think and hearing their stories and thinking about their the challenges that face them both in our communities and in the hospital, how difficult an environment it must be for them if they're in a correctional facility. So I started performing competency to stand trial evaluations to get a closer look at what happened when mentally ill people uh, were in our nation's facilities and really came to discover two things. First, that the people I was seeing in the facilities that were punitive, the, the jails and prisons were indistinguishable many times from the patients I was treating in my hospital setting, a therapeutic setting. And also that the, env- the prison environments in our country made mentally ill people worse and even psychologically, the well people less healthy. And 
we heard terrible stories about life inside our prisons during the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I wonder what you heard, though, from the people who you know inside prisons, the people who are part of the prison system, about mental illness and the effect that the pandemic had on uh, those who suffer from mental illness inside the prison system. There's no question that the COVID pandemic exacerbated problems within a system that is already deeply, deeply challenging. The overcrowding of the prisons meant that, you know, there was no way for people to socially distance. And so when uh, COVID got into our jails and prisons, it swept through them at great numbers, infecting detainees and correctional officers alike. Um, and so that, that posed all the infectious challenges that you can imagine. It also posed many of the psychological challenges uh, that we all faced, but with an increased level of helplessness. And I think many of us who were living free lives through the bleak, most bleak days of the pandemic felt a degree of helplessness. And imagine even more so if you were unable to protect yourself and your family, unable to socially distance or take your own protection into your own hands. I do think one of the interesting things about the pandemic is that it gave a rare moment of empathic connection to those of us who live free lives. I think we all felt the psychological burden of being separated from our families, of being unable to visit ill uh, loved ones in the hospital or be at the bedside of a beloved person who was dying, uh, being separated from children and grandchildren, parents and grandparents. And I think it was a moment where we could begin to understand in some small way that this is what we do intentionally when we incarcerate people in America. And the psychological effects that we all felt from that separation gives us a little bit of a glimpse of the psychological damage that we impose on others when we send them to jail and prison. Mm. You know, so you found that the practices in our prisons make people who suffer from mental illness worse and can render mentally stable people psychiatrically unwell. I I feel like there's kind of a a paradox there, a paradoxical question at least, which is does prison itself cause mental illness or is our system of – support for people who suffer from mental illness in the first place so bad that so many of them end up in prisons where, of course, uh, they are not treated and where their conditions get worse. It's kind of a uh, which comes first kind of kind of question or which is the, the sort of triggering uh, event or, or, or dynamic here. Uh, can you talk just a little about that? Sure. The short answer to your question is yes. Uh, both of those to everything, things, right? <laughs> right, right. But both of those things are true. Um, one one truth is absolutely that people with mental illness um, are often uh, incarcerated and sent to punitive facilities instead of therapeutic ones. Uh, in our country, when we have psychiatric emergencies, um, loved ones call nine one one when their family members are in danger or out of control, and police arrive to the scene and. And in the moment of the police encounter, they have to decide whether the person should be taken to the hospital or to jail. So, so, so oftentimes in that moment, you have people routed to a punitive facility when they ought to be taken to a therapeutic one. In addition, uh, we really have designed our jails and prisons to focus 
not on safety and justice, which we say that our goals are, but rather on suffering and vengeance. We want people as a society to really suffer when they're in prison. We don't believe, you know, our practices indicate that we don't believe that people should have rehabilitation and support when they're in prisons. And instead, we really uh, celebrate a degree of prison that is based in hardship and suffering. That necessarily dehumanizes and degrades people. And in a country where 95% of people who are detained in jails and prisons return to our communities, it's really an unwise approach. We should want people to emerge from prison stronger and better than when they went in. So they're more able to participate in our communities and societies and be better neighbors, better taxpayers and, and stronger and better people. I'm talking with uh, Christine Montrose. She's an author, poet and associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She's also a practicing inpatient psychiatrist. Her latest book is titled Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. It is now available in paperback, and it talks about the intersection between incarceration and mental illness in our country. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during this conversation. When we talk about reforming mass incarceration and public safety, What are the biggest changes you would like to see? Have you or a loved one ever been incarcerated? How did that experience affect your mental health? Uh, And what changes did you see in mental health uh, of yourself or of a loved one while you or they were imprisoned? And also, do you believe that we might see some change on this front in our lifetimes? There are some pretty serious conversations going on about the future of imprisonment uh, in uh, this country. Do you think we're going to figure this out uh, and figure out a better way, perhaps, to deal with people who suffer from mental illness, figure out a better way to offer them support and treatment uh, rather than arrest and imprisonment? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, of course, uh, this should go without saying, but we especially want to hear from people who've had experience uh, in the prison system. Uh, give us a call and tell us what that was like from a mental health perspective, uh, whether uh, you have been able to to find more support uh, after being in prison uh, than you found before or while you were there. Uh, I, I, I think that experience is unique uh, and it's an, an important part of this conversation. So we would love to hear from people who have had that experience. Again, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter put comments there, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Amanda on Twitter says, what would it take to reform our criminal justice system to make it actually be rehabilitative for all, including the mentally ill? It's a great question. Uh, Christine Montrose, what, what would it take to pivot here to something more effective, but also more humane? 
Yeah, the, great question. And the exciting thing about this topic, I think, is that there are really clear paths forward. And that question highlights two of them for me. One is the idea that in any medical emergency, when a person calls 911, they're met with trained clinicians. So EMTs and paramedics arrive if you've been in a car accident or you're having a heart attack. And they can administer oxygen and start IVs and stabilize fractures and then transport you to a medical facility that will treat your symptoms. That's not what happens for people who are psychiatrically ill. In a psychiatric emergency, the first responders are police. And not only do we not then have trained clinicians who are able to intervene in therapeutic ways, but mentally ill people are also 16 times more likely to be killed by police in a police encounter than people who are mentally well. So I think step one is responding to psychiatric emergencies with trained clinicians so we keep people out of jail for psychiatric emergencies to begin with. Once people are in the, our nation's correctional facilities, there's a really clear way to do things differently. And one of the things that I was able to do in my book was research places that are doing this well with better results. And I went to Scandinavia and saw the, the models in Sweden and Norway of systems that have had many of the same challenges that we've had, high recidivism rates, violence in the prisons, escapes and riots and murders. Um, and they have taken a completely different approach since the 1990s where they describe it as we stopped meeting hard with hard and we started meeting hard with soft. What they mean when they say that is that the minute a person comes into prison, they do a needs assessment to try to evaluate what it is, that it, what are the deficits have been that have led to a person uh, participating in the kind of criminal behavior that they have. And then they use the time of incarceration to really target those deficiencies. So if you need anger management or substance abuse treatment, education or job training. Those are personalized needs that are met during the time of incarceration so that when you leave prison, you're less apt to return. Their recidivism rate has dropped from 60 to 70% to 20%. And as a result, even though there's an initial investment in the system that for, to provide that support and rehabilitation, in the long run, it's much less expensive because once people leave prison, they don't return. So there are these beautiful models of, of how our prison system could be more effective and more humane and more cost efficient. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Shanae in Gross Point Farms. Shanae, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the show. Oh, thank you. Um, so my father right now is incarcerated. And since COVID, um, it's been very, very scary. And he's contracted COVID. And what he's told us is that they vaccinated all of the inmates, and I don't think they really had a choice. So that's one thing. I haven't seen them in two years because they're not allowing visitors. Um, also, I've contacted the warden and the parole board and everyone that I could to uh, see if they could release him and at least have him on a tether while he quarantined because he has a lot of pre-existing conditions and mm -hmm. they didn't want to they didn't want to do any of that mm. and they would rather keep him incarcerated than to try to figure out a way to keep him safe he's a nonviolent offender and he's to be paroled later this year anyway mm. and i just felt like you know the system 
sometimes does whatever it can to keep those people housed there because they're getting those federal dollars. And they really care about that more than the safety or like she was saying, like the rehabilitation. A lot of times it's about punishing the inmates and feeling like they get what they deserve. So, so Shanae, I'm very sorry for the situation that you're facing with your, your, your dad, but, but I want to ask you to talk just a little about um, how this affects your mental health. The, the, not seeing your dad for two years, for instance, and then the worry that you have about how he is in, in prison because of COVID and, and, and other things. How have you been able to, to cope with that? Yeah, so, I mean, our family is very close-knit, so we do lean on one another, and we try to just kind of, you know, remain prayerful and hopeful in that way, um, my dad does call us regularly, but there was a time he didn't um, because he didn't want us to know he had COVID. Mm. And it's been going the other way, too. Like my sister, she had it. and She didn't want him to know that because he can't do anything from where he is. Right. So it's been really tough on our family, just this whole thing. Mm. Uh, Shanae, again, I, I am really sorry for the situation you face, uh, but I appreciate the call and you sharing that with us. Christine Montrose I think this raises a a really great example of, again, the mental health issue, not just being about the person who's incarcerated, but also about the people around that person and the people connected to that person. Absolutely. And I really am grateful for Shanae sharing her her lived experience of this time and of her family's experience of it. I think, you know, one of the things that we know uh, helps people the most succeed once they leave prison is if their family connections have been strong. And it sounds like even as as Shanae's family that really, you know, she talks about a strong family and leaning on each other, that these extraordinary times have really exacerbated the inability to remain in contact and to foster these relationships. And so one of the things that we ought to do more is is, uh, uh, increase ways that detainees can be in contact with their families and really allow those relationships to flourish. Instead, too often, we really actively uh, just um, uh, keep people from having that ability. We move detainees far away from their home communities. We make visiting very difficult, and COVID has has only made that so much worse. So Mm. I'm not surprised to hear that story, but I certainly am saddened by it. Yeah. Shanae, again, really appreciate the call and uh, your sharing. Let's go to Jake in Detroit. Jake, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Hey. Um, spent several years working in the Michigan prison system, uh, very early in a law enforcement career was the most horrifying experience of my life. Um, when, when you're in that position, the only way it seems like you can mentally survive it, uh, the thought, uh, that, that, you know, when you're locked up in a prison facility as a, as a guard, as a transport person, as a prisoner, you're all sharing the same space. You're all in the same jail cell. It's just a matter of which side of the bars you're on. And when you go, the only difference is, is we get to go home, but we take it home. Mm. And the only way it seemed to survive it, uh, per the a lot of the training that we got, was to dehumanize the people who we 
um, who we were there to supposedly take care of, and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, and I couldn't continue with the career. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to call and, and share share that perspective with you, Jake. I'm 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 glad you did because it's a perspective that I don't think we hear a whole lot. Uh, we don't hear from people who are working in this condition and these situations about how they feel and what what happens to them. And I'm not at all minimizing the experience of prisoners, of course, but the the people who are the jailers also have some effect, I think, on their mental state. Uh, Christine Montrose, we've got about a minute left, but I'd love to hear you respond to, to what Jake is talking about. I'm thrilled that Jake called in and, and shared that perspective, which is one that I heard over and over again from correctional officers. You know, the rate of suicide among correctional officers is higher even than military and police. It's an incredibly hard job, and and they are char- they they do exist within these these uh, dehumanizing environments. They do get to go home, but Jake's exactly right that they take that that home with them. One of the beautiful things in Norway and Sweden that I saw was the redefinition of the correctional officer to be more like a social worker hmm. who got to know the people that, that he or she was working with and to help them be future oriented and focused so the two were collaborating and allied instead of in this relationship that was by definition adversarial, which is stressful and difficult for anyone, but particularly in a, in a working environment, that's not an easy thing to go into. So critically important point that Jake raises. And again, I think for us to recognize that the current model of the prison system damages not only the people who are held within it, but the people who work within it, and then our communities more broadly once people who've been damaged are released back into them. Yeah, I thought one of the critical things that Jake said was that it's a prison for everybody. It's just a question of what side of the bars you're on. That was a really, really hair-raising description of what goes on. Okay, uh, Christine Montrust, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is going to be all for us today. I'll be back tomorrow with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. He is going to talk to us about what's going on at the state level. Plus, mosquitoes are just unbearable this year. I'm going to talk about why with an expert. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.